Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are finishing Isaiah, chapters 58 through 66. Uh, Three things I really want to talk about in this podcast, and one of them is the bit on fasting in Isaiah 58, and then all the rich temple imagery in the 61st and 62nd chapter to me is beautiful. Jesus is going to quote that, so I really love that. And then the third thing I want to talk about is the new heaven and new earth and some of the millennial prophecies. So those are my big three. If I had you know 45 minutes in front of a gospel doctrine class and I had these chapters, those are the big three that I would tackle. And while I was doing those big three, I would make sure that they, at the back of their mind, are hearing the voice about the Latter-day Saints, the righteous group that's the remnant that will gather in the Latter Days to usher in the second coming prior to all these millennial prophecies. So we need to walk away from Isaiah clearly saying who Jesus is and who we are as Latter-day Saints and the work that we will accomplish in the end as he comes back to earth. Yeah. Now, there's a bit of a question as to whether or not Isaiah is the author of these specific chapters. Yeah. Typically, scholars look at these last few chapters of Isaiah as having been written after the exile's return to Jerusalem around 520 BC. As someone who loves the Book of Mormon, we're safe. Like These chapters are not in the Book of Mormon. So whether they were originally written by Isaiah back in 740 to 700 BC, or they were written by his followers after the return of the exiles, it really, to me, it doesn't matter. But just know that typically in scholarship, they view this as Often it's called Trito Isaiah or Third Isaiah, as if the followers of Isaiah who came back to Jerusalem wrote this at the time when they are deciding to build the temple, which was right around 516 BC. Now, the thinking is, well, clearly Isaiah wasn't there when this subject matter occurred, and therefore he didn't write it. But there is the possibility, and I'm going to shout it out, that his Syriac eyes, that Isaiah, with his Syriac abilities and in that role of prophet, is in the future writing to those people, and they actually had the writings of Isaiah to a future group of people. Absolutely. So I think there's room for all of that in this, that maybe it was Isaiah, prophesying of future events, or maybe it really was a prophet in that event who's speaking to the people and maybe representing, or a follower of Isaiah. I think there's room for all of that in this argument. Yeah. But before we jump in, let me do another big picture look for this theme throughout this week. Last week, the theme was kind of Jesus the faithful husband. This week, we kind of have a similar theme. It's almost as if Jesus is talking to two groups of people at the same time, that he's speaking to a rebellious group that he has turned his back on, but at the same time, he's speaking to a righteous group. Now, who was that righteous group? Because if this time period is kind of the Babylonian captivity, or at least going into or post-captivity, if that's the time period, then I think we could clearly identify the rebellious people that caused all of that. 
So was there a righteous branch of Israelites that maybe were forced underground at that time? Were there righteous people then that Jesus is speaking to? You're going to hear their voice coming out. It's kind of like this verse in chapter 65. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. There's that hint about a good righteous branch that I'm going to preserve. So was it a righteous branch of Israel that was kind of living in the shadows of this more rebellious group? Or perhaps is he referring to the Nephites that he sent to America, that there's my righteous branch, while you Israelites here in Jerusalem have kind of gone astray? Or perhaps is it our voice? Are we the righteous branch? Are we the cluster of grapes that's causing God to preserve Israel? Is it our voice that you're going to hear in these verses? A voice beyond the apostasy of a group of Israelites who will call Christ their king and be faithful to him. So watch for that tension as he talks to the rebellious group, but he also talks to and about this righteous group and the blessings he has in store for them. So let's talk about the voice of this prophet in these chapters 58 through 66 and his voice as it is given to these different groups. And so the verse I wanted to share comes out of the 66th chapter, and it's in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. So verse 5 seems to indicate that the Lord is speaking through the prophet, to a group of Jews who are on the outs. They're cast out, and the Lord is saying, don't worry, I'm going to watch over you. And then the first bit of 66 seems to indicate that they have chosen their own ways. Verse 1, where is the house that you build unto me? Verse 3, he that killeth an ox as if he slew a man, he that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck, he that offered an offering or an oblation as if he offered swine's blood so that we have these symbols and they're they're not good right but the the setting here clearly mike is the the rebuilding of the temple yeah so that's why we're a lot of people think that this is post-exile return to jerusalem because he's talking about that where's the temple you're supposed to be building right and when and how are the offerings going that you're supposed to offer in that temple you're not doing it well Yes, and so to continue verse 3, it says, Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. So one way to read verse 3, and this is not everyone agrees, but one way to read it is that the individuals who are rebuilding the temple, from the perspective of the author of Isaiah 66, they're not viewed as holy. They're viewed as apostates. Now, that's difficult because Second Temple Judaism has a lot of wonderful things. Jesus was a Second Temple Jew, and he went to the temple and offered sacrifices. But it can be seen that when Jesus went to the temple, that the establishment who ran the temple were opposed to Jesus. And so Jesus could represent this group who are on the outside looking in. And so verse 5 of Isaiah 66, to some scholars, is viewed as a revelation from the prophet 
to a certain group of people who are visionary men and women, and they're on the outs. And this group of visionaries have a different view on salvation and a different view of the temple, and the temple is perhaps viewed as negative. Now, I don't have a problem with this because the first Christians, the followers of Jesus, were those visionaries. And we have Lehi, who was on the outside looking in. He was not part of the establishment. They and, sought his life to yeah, destroy him. Yeah, so I, I, I'm just okay with this. If you want to go down some of the rabbit holes on this, we put stuff in the show notes. We reference some books. A really great book is a book by Paul Hansen called Dawn of the Apocalyptic. And so I like that. Isaiah talking to a couple of different groups. Let's do another one, Mike. While we're in 66, let's do another one, because the last verse— is not the verse you want to end a podcast on. You don't want to leave the gym with a missed shot. You want to walk out with a shot that's beautiful. And so to end our podcast on Isaiah with the very last verse of Isaiah is a little gloomy. But while we're talking about those two groups, then the end of Isaiah becomes significant because he's inviting a group to come to the table. This is the feast that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. This is the feast of the great God. This is the one he's been inviting us to throughout the whole restoration. And when he comes, we will feast with him. And so in verse 19 of Isaiah 66, in preparation for that feast, I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escaped of them unto the nations, to the isles afar off, that they have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. So all of you with missionaries out in the field, perk up your ears. Verse 20, they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all the nations upon the horses and chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts unto my holy mount, saith the Lord. There is Israel coming back. There's that righteous branch of Israel coming to the feast. Verse 22, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. That's that faithful group. But on our way to the feast, notice what we pass. Verse 24, they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. And their worm, meaning the worm in that carcass, shall not die. Neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. In other words, those who would not come to Christ, those who would not obey his commandments and took the consequences for it, their symbolic dead bodies, their carcasses are lying on the ground, and we will pass them on our way to the feast with our great God. You don't want to end Isaiah on this verse. That's a negative end. But do you see the two groups of people? Don't be the guys whose carcasses fall. Be the ones that come to the table. There's that tension in all of these chapters about one group that is rebelling and one group that is listening and being faithful. So here's another one back in 63 that kind of shows the difference between the cluster of grapes that I'm not going to destroy and this rebellious group. So in verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and bare them 
and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. There's that group of Israelites who would not keep his commandments, and therefore he now has to oppress them because of their transgressions. But then he's saying in verse 11, he remembered the days of old, Moses and Egypt and all the glory of the past. And he's asking, where is that group? And then there's a group speaking in verse 17 who says, return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. In other words, bring that group back. Bring the faithful ones back. They're there. Let's bring them back to the table. So you see that dualism going on. He's rebuking a rebellious group inside the house of Israel and promising a return of a righteous group. You know, since you're here, let's just look at verse 16 of Isaiah 63. Verse 16 seems to indicate a visionary community that was ousted by the centralized authority in Jerusalem. They were rejected by Israel and Abraham, and to me, those are code words for the authorities in Jerusalem. So this is just what, how it reads in the King James. Uh, it reads, Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. Now, I just want to say this. Some of the, the Bible commentaries that I've read specifically state things like, Oh, Old Testament theology does not acknowledge God as our Father. Uh, That's just not how it reads. Well, my take on Lehi and the visionaries is, yes, they understand that God is their Father. They also understand that God is our Father by covenant, that Christ can become our Father. Clearly, to me, verse 16 does indicate what Bryce is talking about. There seem to be two groups of returnees, and there there's tension in there. Now, this shouldn't shock us, because when we crack open the very beginning of the Gospels— there are fractures in Judaism, and Jesus is swimming in this mix of divergent views on how to do religion. So I think it's okay for us to read, read it this way. I certainly wasn't there, and I don't know. I don't know if this is you know a group of authorities that control the temple, that have centralized power against the visionaries, but I certainly read Lehi, and I see he kind of gives us permission to see it this way, so it could be this way. And this certainly is Lehi's day. This is right around Lehi's day as the exiles come back, and then Lehi's family is in America while all of this is happening. Yeah. And it's interesting, Bryce, that Nephi says, my brothers Laman and Lemuel were like the authorities in Jerusalem. And so Nephi is kind of opening up our minds to this idea that there were two different ways of viewing things, and they do denigrate Lehi as a visionary man. So these are definitely provocative possibilities. So with that, let's get into 58. Now, the rebuke here is how they were fasting and how they did view the Sabbath day. They have become a people that seem to be going through the motions and have missed the meaning of some of this. And I wonder if we could have a Lord is it I attitude. I think when Jesus announced that he was going to be betrayed and one of them would betray him, they weren't pointing the fingers at each other. Oh, I know who it is, or this is like that one person down the street. They all kind of had a Lord is it I attitude, and I think we should read this chapter as 
have I done that with some of the gospel practices today? Have I turned the sacrament into simply this ritual that I go through like they did with fasting? And so as we read this, look at what they were doing with fasting and look at what Isaiah says was the intent of fasting and ask yourself, have we allowed prayer or sacrament or Sabbath day or church attendance or seminary or institute, have we allowed that to simply become an outward, go through the motions and not really affect me internally? So listen to how Isaiah pleads with them to fast inwardly and observe the Sabbath day inwardly, not so much outwardly. I really like verse six of Isaiah 58, is not this the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Now, that's a great contrast to verses 3 through 5 about what they were doing. Wherefore have ye fasted? Wherefore have ye afflicted your soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Verse 4, he says, Ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fists of wickedness. We might add, ye fast for show, you fast for recognition, or maybe ye fast out of tradition. It's simply become a habit. Verse 5, is it such a fast that I have chosen? a day for man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush or to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? Is it the going without food and being all mopey and sad and complaining and and whining all day long and tearing yourself down? Is that what this is about? Or is it about, and I love what Mike read in verse 6, it's about loosing and undoing and freeing the oppressed and breaking yokes and dealing our bread with the hungry, taking care of people. The Sabbath and fasting and all of these practices that we participate in are supposed to lift and free and break from bondage instead of creating more of that bondage. And I think when we do religion, when we're doing religious things, we appear religious. And that's really what's going on in verse two. We have what's called a key preposition. And in English, it's just translated as as, it can be as or like. And so instead of being a nation that does righteousness, that key preposition is important because in the Hebrew, what the the author is saying is, no, they're not a nation, they're like, or they're appearing to be like. And so this is John Oswalt's take on verse two. He says, there's a tone of astonishment in this verse. These are the people that are very serious about religion. They look like a nation that did justice, but like is a key word. To be like such a nation and to be a nation are not the same thing. And so I think that word as, that English word in verse 2, that they're as a nation that did righteousness is the key. And I think, Bryce, when you said, Lord, is it I, I'm talking to myself. Like, I struggle sometimes because in the, in the act of doing a religious thing, when does the action become real and when is it for show? What Isaiah 58 is inviting us to consider is motives. 
motives matter. And the Savior's going to address that in the Sermon on the Mount. The gist of the Sermon on the Mount is to make a terrestrial people more celestial. That's what Jesus is saying. You've heard in olden days, don't kill. I'm now telling you, don't get angry with your brother. It's the motivation is to, you're a good people because you don't kill. You've become terrestrial, but let me push you up into a celestial realm of living. And then we get to that rebuke in the next chapter where he says, you fast for show. You fast to be recognized by others. In other words, the difference between doing something good at a terrestrial level and doing something good at a celestial level is your motive. Why are you doing this? And if you are fasting or praying or giving a talk in church or anything so that you draw the glory to yourself, if you are seeking the credit for the good thing you're doing, the Lord seems to be saying, I'm grateful that you're doing a good thing, but if you want to become celestial, you need to change your motive. Celestial people aren't motivated by public recognition and acknowledgement. Celestial people are motivated by the praise of their Heavenly Father and their love of their Heavenly Father. They don't fast and tell people that they're fasting so that they receive recognition that they're fasting. They fast because they love Heavenly Father and they want to connect with Him and fulfill His purposes. It's a challenge though, right? Like we're in a ward, uh, we're in a family, human beings are hardwired for connection. We want to feel like we matter. I mean, you and I work together, and I, I want to be able to bring something to the table where you say, Mike, thanks. That was, I really like that. And vice versa, I know that I'll come to you and say, Bryce, like you taught me something today, and that was really valuable. So because God put into our brain this need for connection, I also see that. Yeah. This quote's by Mike Wilcox, and it's from a book called What the Scriptures Teach Us About Prosperity. And the first time I read this, it really opened my mind to what you're talking about, celestial motives. This is what he says. Perhaps the feel of hunger is why the Lord in his wisdom has linked fasting with giving to the poor. It took me a number of years to realize why we donate fast offerings on the day that we fast. So often I've been reminded by others to have a purpose for the fast. And that is excellent advice. It is healthy to think of a personal reason for fasting or to fast for the spiritual support of another member, but I think the greatest reason of all is linked to the donation and needs no other motive. Hunger is the greatest scourge of poverty. When we fast, we feel, in the slightest of ways, what the poor may feel every moment of every day. Knowing that this is their experience, we are asked to alleviate it by our contribution. Our fasting is a monthly encouragement to consider the plight of the poor. And I remember when I read that for the first time and I thought, you know, I really don't go hungry. And if you're truly poor, they probably live in hunger. And it just opened my mind. And hence the goal of fasting is to develop a celestial character. That I feel something, that you're suffering, and I want to do something about it. That's a whole lot better than moping around the house and asking mom how long it is until we can eat. That's why I stay out of the kitchen, because if I'm in the kitchen, I'm miserable. Now, in verse 13, he kind of takes the same approach with the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath isn't a list of all the things I can't do, and I mourn that I can't do them. The Sabbath needs to be a delight. Verse 13, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, 
and shalt honor him. It's that celestial attitude. I am grateful to have a day to focus on my heavenly father and my connection with him. And how can I draw closer to him? I'm so grateful to have that opportunity to rest and to rejuvenate and connect with God. I see it as a joy and as a pleasure, and I look forward to it rather than, oh, here's all the things I can't do. If we focus on the delight that is the Sabbath day, we are developing that celestial attribute. So with that, we're going to go into Isaiah 59. Many look at this as a lament. Now, Isaiah 59 can really be parted out into three segments. The three segments of this chapter are the first eight verses where we talk about the sins of the people, and then the people confess in Isaiah 59, 9 through 14, and then at the end, from verse 15 to 21, the Lord responds to their confession and to the overall lament. So that's the big picture. The first part, we're just talking about the sins of the people, and in the midst of these verses, there's some interesting patterns that you can see. And to see that, do you remember how we've talked about repentance? Back when we were talking about the Psalms, we quoted John the Baptist, who actually quotes Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, it's that beautiful phrase, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. Quick summary if you didn't hear the Psalms podcast. Repentance is the act of getting Jesus back into my life. If I've created a mountain between myself and the Savior because of something I've done, if I've pushed him away, it's the act of tearing that mountain down. If there's a crooked path, it's the act of straightening that crooked path so that Jesus comes into my life. Now, Isaiah 59 is a look at the world that I create when I push Christ out of my life, whether that's with my attitudes or my sins or my transgressions, that's what you're going to find in chapter 59. This is a description of the crooked path. It even calls it that in verse 8. The way of peace they know not. There is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. And it's going to describe that. Verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you between God. There's kind of the context. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. There's God's ears. But notice what happens in verse 3. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath murdered perverseness. Verse 7, their feet run to evil. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Notice verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. Verse 11, we roar. What's coming out of my mouth? We roar. All like bears and mourning sore like doves, we look for judgment, but there is none. Verse 13, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. So what's in their heart? So let me take you back to the Garden of Eden and how sin is introduced into our lives. Adam and Eve portray 
how sin comes into our life. Notice in Moses chapter 4, if you want to go check out the verbs, the first thing is they saw. Sin is in our eyes and in our ears. We hear, we see. And then sin became pleasant. So we're thinking about it. Sin is in my head. It's gone from my eyes and my ears to my thoughts. And I'm pondering. And then notice the next verb is, they desired. It's in their heart. Now they want it. And once we want sin, the next verb is they took. It's in their hands. It's in their feet. They're taking hold of it. They're walking towards it. And then the next verb is they partake of sin. And then they share. Because sin is in my head and my heart, it's in all of those others. It's gone to my hands, my fingers, my lips, and my tongue. Those of you who dwell in sacred places will recognize the need to cleanse my eyes, my head, what I think about, my heart, what I desire, my hands, what I hold, my feet, where I walk, my loins, my fertility and what I pass on to the world and give to my children, you'll see the need that these body parts represent as far as how sin comes into my world. Now, notice the very next verse, verse 13. Remember in chapter 3, at the very end of Moses chapter 3, they were naked and unashamed? Now that they've partaken of the fruit, they feel that shame of having transgressed but they want to cover up that shame. They are naked and shamed, and they want to cover that shame. And so in verse 13, they grab fig leaves to cover themselves with. Now, later on, the father covers them with coats of skins, which represents the atonement. But do you see that natural procession that once sin is in my eyes and ears and then goes to my head and then my heart and then my hands, I am uncovered. Now, look for all of those elements in Isaiah 59. You're going to find every one of them. Do you see that connection to the Garden of Eden and to sacred places? Those are all the things I need to covenant with God to change. So, Bryce, in connection with this, there was this Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem who was in the fourth century. We put this in the show notes if you want to go check it out. But I just want to read this bit where he talks about partaking of the Eucharist, and in preparation for the early Christians to partake of it, he talks about a holy anointing. Now, if you've never heard of the word Eucharist before, that's a way to say the sacrament. In the Catholic Church, the Eucharist is the flesh and blood of Jesus, and so that's what they term it. We call it the sacrament, getting with the sacred, but we're talking about the same ideas. So in preparation for coming and partaking of the tokens of the Savior's sacrifice, uh, Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem in the fourth century wrote about their anointing, how they were washed and anointed to prepare to take the emblems of Jesus, his flesh and blood. And this is what he wrote to the Christians. And you were first anointed on the forehead that you might be delivered from shame, which the first man who transgressed bore about with him everywhere, and that with unveiled face ye might reflect as a mirror the glory of God. And then you were anointed on your ears, that you might receive the ears which are quick to hear the divine mysteries, of which Isaiah said, 
the Lord gave me an ear to hear, Isaiah 50 verse 4. And so did the Lord Jesus in the gospel when he said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear, Matthew eleven fifteen. Then you were anointed on the nostrils, that you received the sacred ointment, that you may say, We are to God a sweet savor of Christ, and them that are saved. Afterwards you were anointed on your breast, that having put on the breastplate of righteousness, you may stand against the wiles of the devil. For as Christ, after his baptism and the visitation of the Holy Ghost, went forth and vanquished the adversary, so likewise you, after holy baptism and the mystical chrism, that's the anointing, and having put on the whole armor of the Holy Ghost, are to stand against the power of the adversary and vanquish it, saying, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, Philippians 4.13. So that's Cyril on what's called the chrism, meaning the anointing, speaking to the early Christians in Jerusalem in the fourth century. And so I find that really interesting that many of these things, Bryce, the early Christians saw this as, no, we need to be clean from these things, and we need to be anointed in the sense of, we want to be like Christ. And so the early Christians tried to imitate Christ as much as they could in their actions, and they were even, at least in Cyril's day, anointed. I love that. Now, contrast this chapter with what's happening on God's side. Verse 1, the Lord's hand is not shortened. So the irony is, verse 3, their hands are defiled with blood, and God's hand is reaching out to them to pull them back. God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So their ears are not hearing him, but his ears are hearing them. I love in verse 15 that they just point this out. Speaking of the evil that they were committing, in verse 15 it says, the Lord saw it. So we've seen the Lord's eyes, his hand, and his ears. Now, notice in verse 17, just like Mike mentioned, we go to the armor of God. So now the plea is, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate. What does my breastplate cover? My righteousness covers my heart. Their heart, in verse 13, was conceiving and uttering falsehood. But when righteousness is my breastplate, my heart will conceive and utter righteousness. Back in verse 17 again, so they've got the breastplate of righteousness on and a helmet of salvation upon his head. What will protect my thoughts? I covenant to God to keep my thoughts focused on salvation. I love that Paul in Thessalonians called it the hope of salvation. The helmet, my hope of salvation is what fills my thoughts and keeps them centered on God. And then he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. I know you can take vengeance a lot of ways, but the garment he's putting on is a protection for him. He is clad with zeal as a cloak. In other words, he's covered. He's covered because the man of Christ has his head focused on Christ, his heart focused on Christ, his mouth focused on Christ, and he is covered. That's a beautiful juxtaposition of the one who has, back in verse 2, whose iniquities have separated them from God, 
and the one who is trying to bring God into their life. I love Isaiah 59. It is a painful description of the crooked path, but a beautiful description. If you straighten that path and bring Christ back into your life, You know, I think big picture in this chapter, I mean, you just laid it out so beautifully as far as them going off the path, and their confession in verses 9 through 14 also has this idea that justice is far from them, that righteousness does not reach them. That's Isaiah 59, 9, and then they say, we walk in darkness, we're we're in desolate places as dead men. So they're pleading, it's a lament, they're pleading for help, and the Lord's response really is you know what, I'm going to fix it. I mean, look in verse 15 where it says the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no mishpat or no no fairness or no judgment as it reads in the King James. In other words, God's going to come and fix it. And so he does. He saw that there was no man. To me, that can be read as he's going to do what he can do because no one's doing it. And then he fixes it. I mean, that's kind of the end. If you look in verse 20 and 21, the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. When we talk about the covenants of the Lord being contained in the Book of Mormon, and that the, one of the messages of the Book of Mormon is to remind us that the covenants of the Lord are still valid, this is one of those covenants. And essentially what the Lord, to me, is saying is, He knows me, and He's going to watch out for my kids and my grandkids, and He loves them. And this idea of Him putting His words in my mouth It's like I read the words, but as I read them, the words breathe in me, and they become part of who I am. And by reading them and speaking them to my children, I become like them, and I spread that to my children. And that's why I love the tree image in Isaiah used over and over again, this imagery of a tree, because as the tree takes the water from the ground and the light from the leaves, like everything is connected, the leaves and the branches and the tree. And that's kind of how I read this promise. And it also, to me, is tied into the temple and fertility, how the Lord is mindful of our families. So I I think the end is so beautiful. And I think whether or not Nephi had access to these verses, Nephi got this, because in his vision, when he has it after the tree, and then he sees his descendants, and he sees with sadness that they will reject the Redeemer, you know that had to weigh heavily on his mind, because that's who Nephi was. He was a father and a grandfather, and he loved his family. Yeah. So now let's go to chapter 60, and 60 is this transition into the glorious days of Zion, the glorious daughter, the glorious days to come. And I see the Latter-day Saints all over chapter 60. Now, I don't think it's limited to the latter days. There's a lot of people who could claim, yeah, he's talking about me, but I like to hear us in these verses. This is Zion that's coming to Isaiah, but I think this is Zion that is here today, that we are this group of people as we begin to transition 
transition into a millennial day. We are the preparers that came to prepare the world for that millennial day. And I really think chapter 60 is describing a lot of what's going on in our day and will continue and be perfected as we go into the millennial day. You know, Bryce, in church history, I think that a lot of people wanted it to happen and they wanted it right quick. And I love the end of chapter 60, the very last verse where it says, I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. In other words, it's on the Lord's timetable. And so if you're sitting at home going, okay, when are we having these things? I think that's the message we all just need to trust, that it will happen when it's to happen. And I think the idea is bring Zion into your home, bring Zion into your life, and let the Lord decide when Zion comes into the world and the church and is bigger than me. So verse 1 of Isaiah 60 reads as follows, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. But we also have this image of darkness covering the earth in verse 2. Notice that verb cover, darkness covers the earth. Yeah. One way I read this is I read Zion coming up out of the darkness. It's like there's an ocean of darkness, but there's a beacon of light that's coming up. And in the midst of it coming up, the kings of the earth are going to come to the holy city to pay homage to Zion. We see that in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 10, but we also see it in some of these other passages. I mean, if you look in verse 6, what we see is a multitude of camels coming to Zion. They're bringing gold and incense. They're bringing the fruits of the earth, the gold of the earth to build Zion. Now, in the book of Revelation, John's going to describe Zion and use a lot of images of gold and gems and beautiful things. And a lot of that's going on here in Isaiah chapter 60. There's a lot of connections to Revelation. For example, John describes a celestial city where there is no sun. And here in Isaiah 60, verse 19, the sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. Why? But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down. Why? The Lord shall be thy everlasting light. So John describes a city where there's no sun because the sun is with us and never leaves us, and never goes down. I love in verse 11 that the gates are always open. The gates to the celestial city never close. And I think you can take that so many ways. You're always welcome. You're always able, if you want to, to come into the celestial city. But I think the way it's being portrayed in verse 11 is we can't close them because people are constantly coming in. The flow of people coming into Zion is so great that we can't close the doors. Beautiful imagery here. Yeah, I really like it. There's a reversal as well. So in verse 14, the sons of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. And they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is a reversal. And if you remember, in antiquity, Jerusalem was at the center of all these empires, and they are always being kicked around. And so to the exiles who are returning, this is a beautiful promise that they'll be protected and If you're a Latter-day Saint and you read this and you think, oh my goodness, when can we have Zion? This sounds like a good thing that finally we're going to be at peace. Listen to this fascinating prophecy in Doctrine and Covenants section 45. You would think this is coming right out of Isaiah 60. 
but it's Doctrine and Covenants 45. The Lord says in verse 66, it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. And the glory of the Lord shall be there. And the terror of the Lord shall also be there, insomuch that the wicked will not come unto it. And it shall be called Zion. And it shall come to pass among the wicked that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety. And there shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven, and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. That's a modern-day description of the very same city that Isaiah is describing in chapter 60. It goes so well with verses 14 and 15. Yeah. So there's an interesting verse in Isaiah 60, verse 16, the Lord speaking to the returnees, "'Thou shalt suck the milk of the Gentiles,' and shalt suck the breast of kings. And thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So that ending of verse 16, the Mighty One of Jacob, is Abir Yaakov, and that is the bull of Jacob. And when I say bull, I mean like a big male steer. B-U-L-L, not B-O-W-L. That's a fertility image, the bull of Jacob. So this whole image of sucking the milk of Gentiles and sucking the breasts of kings can be very strange. It could be a different kind of reading. And I think we're just separated by culture. I think that's what's going on here. Uh, John Oswalt states this. He says, across the ancient world, the mark of greatness and exaltation was to have been suckled at the breast of a goddess. This meant the life of the gods flowed through the person. So I, I think one way to read this is that the people that are coming to build Zion are literally being nourished by the Gentiles. This is not unlike this verse. Go to Isaiah 49, verse 23. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face towards the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. And then, since we're reading verse 23, you might as well skip down and read the end of verse 25, where the Lord says, I will save thy children. So the image to me seems to be in this chapter that the Lord is telling the people that are building Zion that the wealth of nations will go and help them to build Zion. Now, if you're a Jew and you're, and you're reading Isaiah 60, you're seeing this and you're saying, oh my goodness, the establishment of Israel was put together by the United Nations and the nations of the world supported them in building Israel and establishing a place where the Jews could return. And I would say, yes, I love that. If you're a Latter-day Saint and you read this, it's this prophetic thing that will happen in the future, that Zion will be built and that because it's the Lord's people, that the kings of the earth or the wealth of nations will come and fix it. I mean, look in verse 17. I'm going to bring gold and brass and iron and silver. Verse 18, and this is right out of what Bryce was reading in section 45. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land. That's beautiful. Okay, look at the end of verse 18. Thou shalt call thy wall salvation and thy gates praise. And then verse 21, thy people shall all be righteous and they shall inherit the land forever. Now, 
possession of the land was important. And that was one of the questions the Nephites had. It was, okay, because we're not in the land, are we still your people? And one of the messages the Lord gave the Nephites was, yes, you still are my people. This too is a promised land. And so I like to read Isaiah 60 through the lens of Zion is wherever the saints choose to live a Zion life. Now Isaiah is going to turn millennial. We're going to focus on this beautiful day of the millennium and so many wonderful things. Now, this certainly is literal. There is going to be a millennium, and Jesus will usher in that millennium. He will bring peace. But another way to read this is that the millennial peace is what Christ brings into our individual lives and into our homes if we will receive him. It's the peace that Jesus brings to each of us. And that being said, it is 61 that a 30-year-old Savior walked into the synagogue in Nazareth, asked for the scroll of Isaiah, turned to what is to you and I, chapter 61, read verses 1 and 2, handed the scroll back, sat down at the point where it was known to the congregations that he would then comment on what he just read. He would share his thoughts on the scripture that he just quoted. And Jesus says, this day is this scripture filled in your ears. In other words, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and says, this is what I came to do. This is what I am offering to do in each of your lives, in all of your lives. And if you let me, I can bring millennial peace to this earth. And if you let me, I can bring that same peace to your individual heart. So this is an absolute beautiful list. I would gather my children or my class, and I would say, let's go through this list, and I want you to understand what the Savior is committing to do. So verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to. And in my scriptures, I put a colon after the word to, and I've numbered each thing that he commits that he is anointed to do. So number one, he is anointed to preach good tidings unto the meek. Next, he says, he is anointed to bind up the brokenhearted. That's his calling. That's his mission, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, whether that's death or sin or addiction or anything else. Jesus will help proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the doors of prisons to them that are bound. We continue in verse 2. He is anointed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I read that as, he is anointed to proclaim what will make me acceptable in the year that he comes. He's going to proclaim what I need to do to be acceptable. Also in verse 2, he has been anointed to comfort all that mourn. That is his job, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. Now, Mike's talked about that beautifully in the past. That is the role of the Messiah. His job is to turn ashes into beauty, oil 
for the praise of mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And then this beautiful phrase, Jesus is anointed to produce and plant and grow and nourish trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. That, to me, is the best summary that he himself quotes of what he came to do. And he's offering to do that in each of our lives, us collectively as a people, as a planet, and me individually, my family individually. So the best thing for someone that mourns to do is to turn to him. The best thing for someone who is captive to do is to turn to him. Allow him to turn ashes into beauty. I love that exchange, the great exchange of giving our brokenness, and then he comes and he fixes it. And so we are trees of righteousness as we accept Christ. And in course of doing this, he releases us from captivity. Now, one way to read that, proclaim liberty to the captives, you know, go right to section 138, where Joseph F. Smith sees that the proclamation of liberty to the captives was the preaching of the gospel to the people that were in the spirit world. We are all captive in that sense. And I also love these two chapters. I love to read 61 and 62 as a motif of a wedding, but also of the temple itself. And you think about a temple in the basement, under the ground is where they're baptized, where we proclaim liberty, and they receive membership in the church, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then we see these other things. We see these symbols of an exchange. The cosmic king exchanges tokens of our fallen brokenness with perfection. And then in verse 6, they eat. Look what it says. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. Now, remember in the first temple, there was a feast. There were a couple that I think were going on. There was one in the second room, the Hakal, but then another one in the Debir where they eat in the presence of the Father. Notice verse six. Ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. So where are the priests? They're in the temple. So we have this exchange of tokens. We have them eating. They're named the priests of the Lord. And then we read, I will rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. That's Isaiah 61, verse 10, where they're clothed with the garment of salvation. Now, we also have this wedding idea where it says, as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. So we have this fertility image. We have this garden image, which is tied right into the Song of Solomon, this idea of fertility and love between the Lord and his people. And remember, his people, Zion, is the bride. She is adorned, and it's her wedding day, and she's clothed in the garment of salvation. So we have, once again, this clothing. And then we have Isaiah 62, verse 2 where it says, thou shalt be called by a new name. So now we have this new name. Now remember, kings anciently would take on a new name. A lot of times the English kings would get a new name. And we think there's some of that going on in the Bible where we have a couple different names for David and a couple different names for Solomon. They could be throne names. They have a regular name, and then when they become king, they take a new name. And then notice what happens in Isaiah 62, verse 3. After the new name, Zion receives a crown. And then we're told what the name is. Thou shalt be called Hephzibah and thy land Beulah. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5 really is drenched in the imagery of fertility and the love that the Lord has for his people. 
And not only that, but his people are growing. His descendants are multiplying. This is where we come into play. And I love verse 6. I have set watchmen upon the walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silent. That is us proclaiming God, proclaiming our love for the Savior that we so dearly want to follow. We are those watchmen that are shouting out to the world, and we're going out everywhere. Verse 10, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard to the people. So it's that fertility image of the faithful husband and his faithful bride the king and queen giving birth to many, many children that become the restoration, that become the millennial day, that becomes Zion, and we're growing and we're getting bigger. Total protection, total love. The king, once again, like you said, Bryce, sets up the watchman upon the walls in the sixth verse of Isaiah 62, and he swears by his right hand that the new grain and new wine will no longer be food for her enemies. That's Isaiah 62, verse 8. But then we read that Zion will partake of new grain and new wine in Yahweh's sacred courts. Now, it doesn't really translate into King James as well, but that's what's going on in 62 verse 9, that Zion is eating the new grain and the new wine, and then they are to pass through the gates and come into the holy city. And that's verse 10. And I love the ending where it says, the city will be called the one sought out the city unforsaken. And I think this really resonates with what we talked about last week, Bryce, where you said that the Lord is going to gather the outcasts, the people that have been forsaken. And so Isaiah 62 ends on this beautiful image of a wife marrying her husband, but it's also, you know, think about this. She's been released from captivity. She's eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord. She's been clothed. She's received a new name and a crown. And then verse 11 of Isaiah 61 says that she will spring forth before all nations. So it really is beautiful. It's classic Isaiah where he's saying one thing, but it means lots of other things. That leads us to 63 and the coming of the man in red. So verse 1, who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments? Verse 2, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. Now let's do the negative first. The reason his garments are red is he is cleansing the earth of wickedness. Now bear with this imagery. It's a little harsh, but there have been some very wicked people on this planet. There have been those who have done some very horribly cruel things. And so that vengeance is going to be part of the reason he's wearing red. Sometimes the images of Jesus in the Old Testament sound kind of rough, and part of it is because of culture. But I want you to imagine that you live in a place where you can never call 911, and the only thing keeping you from the violence of the world is your own sword, and how vulnerable you would feel if you didn't have a sword, if you didn't have someone to defend you. And that really is a good description of Israel. She was smack dab in the middle of all these empires. And so oftentimes the prophets would liken their God unto one that would defend them, that would use violence to defend their sacred borders. And that's really what I see here in the 63rd chapter of Isaiah. And I really do, whenever I teach some of these tougher images, I mean, we saw some of this with Joshua, I really like to quote Doctrine and Covenants section one, verse 24, where the Lord says, I will speak unto men 
and give them revelations after the manner of their language, according to their understanding. You see, we don't really think of the Lord like this, but we would if we lived in 700 BC. Yeah. And you can imagine that the Savior out there with a the sword defending Israel from his enemies would end up bloody and would end up covered in red. So that's one sense in which he wears red. In our defense, in the protection of the righteous, in the destruction of the wicked, with a sword in his hand, he's going to end up wearing red. Now, that being said, I think there's another aspect of why he's wearing red, and that's because of the blood that he shed in Gethsemane and that he took upon himself our sins. Isaiah says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Allow me to share that image again. I am confident that Jesus walked into Gethsemane wearing white, but by bleeding from every pore in what he did in there, he came out wearing red. Doctrine and Covenants 133 tells us that he will wear that red at the second coming. Now, symbolically, when Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet. So I walked into Gethsemane to meet him there wearing the red of my transgressions. And that exchange, the great exchange that occurred in Gethsemane is that he took my red. He took my transgressions and I walk out wearing white. I love the paintings that portray the second coming of Christ when he is in red and everyone that comes with him is in white. And that's the symbol. That's the other way in which he is coming wearing red. He's wearing the red of the sins that he took on our behalf. Now, in that sense, let's go back to verse 7. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie, So he was their savior in all their afflictions. Now I'm going to personalize that to us today. In all of our afflictions, he is afflicted. And the angel of his presence saves us. In his love and in his pity, he redeems us. And he bears us and carries us all the days of old. That's the Messiah we need to realize. When we see paintings of him coming in red, that's why he's in red. He defended us. He protected us from harm. And the red is the blood of the enemies who would have destroyed us had he not been there, including death and sin. And the red is the sins that I have committed that he took upon himself for me so that I can wear white. That's the Jesus we love and are looking forward to. Beautiful. There's a shift right after these first verses in the 63rd chapter where we leave that image of the divine warrior, and then we get into a lament. 
Victor Ludlow sees this pattern as a lament, but he calls it, and I love this label, he says, this is Isaiah's intercessory prayer for Israel. And so if you want to block this off, these are the verses that we're going to talk about. Isaiah 63, verse 7 to the end of 64. So these two chapters, once you get past the divine warrior imagery in the beginning of the 63rd chapter, we get into this intercessory prayer. I mean, I love verse 7 where it says, I'm going to mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that he has bestowed upon us and the goodness towards the house of Israel, which he has bestowed upon them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. And that once again is that word chesed of God's loyal love, his steadfast love that never ends. And it's for all time. And I love verse nine, where it says, in their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them. He bare them and he carried them all the days of old. So there's some really beautiful verses where the Israelites lament, they feel like they've been forsaken, and yet the Lord says, no, I know who you are. And I love just picking some of these verses and seeing them as beautiful images of God's love. So I love verse 16 of chapter 63. Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledges us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Now we talked about this, about the two different groups earlier in the podcast. One way to read it is that they're acknowledging that God is their father. The sadness in verse 18 comes through. The people of thy holiness have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. So the it in verse 18 is speaking of the temple, the sadness that the temple has been destroyed. And then you go to the end of 64, where we read in verse 9, Be not wroth, very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. That certainly sounds like after the exile when they return, and with great sadness, they see the remnant of the temple, how it's been destroyed, and they want it fixed. The thing I love in 64 is there seems to be this voice of another group of people saying, but don't destroy everything. Don't end it. I know the temple's destroyed. Israel seems to be destroyed. But don't let this be the end. There's got to be more to the story because we will do it, Lord. We will be faithful. And so verse 8, we have this other group of people crying out saying, But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou art potter. And we are all the work of thy hands. Please don't let this be the end. Give us a chance. And I think that's us. I think that's the Latter-day Saints crying out when Israel was wiped out. I think that's the Nephites in the Book of Mormon saying, hey, we still exist. Israel's not dead. We're still going to succeed. And I think that's the Latter-day Saints crying out for the other end of the apostasy, saying Israel's not dead. The temple's not gone. It's going to come back. We are clay. 
and we're going to give ourselves to the potter and let him mold us. That's an image of who we need to be, the kind of people the Latter-day Saints need to be to bring about this full restoration and bring Israel back, bring temple covenants back, bring the people back, bring Christ back so we can live in this millennial state. I just hear us crying out at the destruction of that temple that it's not over. Don't worry, it's not over. It's kind of like the very end of King Arthur's court, where betrayal has kind of brought an end to the Knights of the Round Table. And King Arthur sees a little boy, and he knights him. And he sends him home, not to the battle, he sends him home to survive. And the idea here is, our message is going to continue. Someone's going to survive and teach and become what we obviously weren't able to become, we're going to succeed. You can also see in some of these chapters that the New Testament authors gained great inspiration. One of those verses is Isaiah 64, verse 4. Paul is going to quote this. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he has prepared for him that waiteth for him. And there's that image again in Isaiah, so replete that God remembers those that wait. And I love verse six, especially as it pertains to grace and works. And I think the Book of Mormon sits squarely in this tradition. Isaiah says, we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. One way to read it, there's lots of ways to read verse six, but one way to read it is we shouldn't get cocky because we do righteous works, because compared to God, it's nothing. Now, the Book of Mormon sits squarely in this tradition that yes, we do righteous works, but it is God that saves. We have this beautiful verse where Lehi in 2 Nephi 2 is speaking to Jacob. In verse 1, he says, Now, Jacob, I speak unto you. You are my firstborn in the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. And then he says in verse 3, Wherefore thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi. And thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. So these are people that clearly love God. Wherefore I know that you, Jacob, are redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. I mean, if that doesn't teach this clearly, I don't know what does. That yes, we do righteous works, but it is God that saves. So I really like these verses, this great intercessory prayer where the prophet Isaiah is pleading that God remember them and that somehow they're able to rebuild this temple. And Bryce, as you were talking about all the different ways to interpret it, I think Isaiah 64, 10 and 11, this lament about the temple could also be 70 AD as the Christians are so sad seeing that Jerusalem is a desolation. And even Jews today, there are many Jews today that read Isaiah 64 and they look forward to a day when they will have a temple again. And so I have this great hopeful expectation as a believer in Jesus Christ that one day the temple will be built, the Savior will come, and everyone will be converted into the Lord. And I think big picture, that was what Nephi saw. He saw this hopeful expectation that the Messiah would come and fix broken things. And he was getting a lot of these ideas from Isaiah's words. So with that, let's go to Isaiah 65. And when I teach Isaiah 65, Bryce, I really like to talk about the millennium, that Isaiah saw things that would be in the future. And it's that phrase, it's a great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. It's a great and dreadful day. For those who are prepared for him, who have sought him, it will be a great day. And they will drink new wine 
and the earth will be a new earth. But those who have not sought him, have not cared about him, it will be a dreadful day. Now, both of those groups are going to be addressed in both of these chapters. And so, in my scriptures, I have two colors. One color is for those for whom the day is great, and the other color is for those for whom the day is dreadful. And he's going to address both of those. So let's speak briefly about those for whom the second coming is dreadful. I want to go back to the very beginning of Isaiah, where he says in chapter 1, the great accusation against Israel is that their heart and head were not sound. And then in the very next chapter, there was that contrast with, come up and learn my ways, or you can be filled with your own way. Chapter 65, verse 2 kind of describes, these are those for whom the second coming is going to be dreadful. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. I think that ties us back to the beginning of Isaiah. When I walk in my own way, what will that do? Verse 11, But ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain. Verse 12, Therefore I will number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you didn't answer. When I spake, ye didn't hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Wherefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry." Behold, my servant shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. So that's kind of the negative. The second coming will be dreadful. And let's just lay it out there that those who have not sought him, who have delighted in things he does not delight in, it will be a dreadful day. But now let's do the other side. For those who seek him, this chapter is a beautiful picture of the peace that is coming. Verse 1, I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I think one way to read that is we're coming out of a tradition where they forgot him and we're the ones that are going to remember. As children of those who didn't seek him, we are the ones that are going to find him. And if you're in that group, verse 8, as the new wine is found in the cluster, don't destroy it. Verse 9, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Now, here comes that whole new group. And so, starting from 17, kind of through the end of the chapter, this is the life of those for whom the second coming will be great and glorious. I really like the end. In verse 10, if you're wondering what's going on with Sharon and Acor, Sharon is the western extreme, and Acor is kind of like down there by Jericho. I think what Isaiah is trying to say is, it's like what we would say in English, from sea to shining sea, from east to west. Like the whole land of Israel is designated as this beautiful place. But Bryce, I really like the ending. Like, I have a hard time with some of the rough stuff, but I really like the ending in verse 17 where he says, 
Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall no more be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now watch how Jesus takes out of the earth the most painful thing in our earth. The loss of those that we love. That is the sting that really hurts. It's death. But in this new world, guess what? Death isn't a sting, unless you're wicked. Death isn't a sting. So in verse 20, there shall be no more fence and infant of days, meaning children aren't going to die, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred, shall be cursed. So there's just not going to be death in this new world. Now, let that be not just literal, but symbolic. If there isn't death in that new world, then is there anxiety and stress and feeling overwhelmed? Are there any things that plague us in this world that will plague us in that world? God is going to remove the sting, the pain, and wipe off all the tears because all of that is past. What a marvelous, wonderful thing to look forward to. And we'll all be there. Resurrected people will be there. Mortals will still continue. What a marvelous thing to look forward to, to get us through the stinging of mortality in this, what is the old world. Joseph Fielding Smith said that during the millennium, there will be no death. Children will not die. Disease will be banished. This is part of the restoration. But that child, when it has reached a certain age, the age of a tree, a hundred years we read in Isaiah, will be changed like that. It will die when it is old. It will pass from the mortal to the immortal state suddenly so that they will not need to make any graves. So that's kind of how he interprets this, a place where verse 21 takes place, where they build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant their vineyards and eat the fruit of them, and shall not build and another inhabit, and shall not plant and another eat. Or if we continue all the way to 25, I want to live in a world where the wolf and everything that that wolf represents and the lamb and everything that that lamb represents shall feed together in harmony and peace. Not just literally wolves and lambs, but symbolic wolves and symbolic lambs. What a marvelous place that will be, Mike. Yeah. The nations of the earth that are like lions will not eat the nations that are like lambs. I really see that as the message of Isaiah, that we actually do get along. And before they call, verse 24, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. He is quick to be with us. I love that. Yeah. Um, The imagery in Isaiah 66 is beautiful. We read this in verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came. She was delivered of a man-child. She is Zion. That's what's going on. Verse 8 says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. One way to read this is, it's like this inverted imagery of a woman instead of having to travail and then bring forth a child. Isaiah seems to be stunned to see that she, meaning Zion, will bring forth the child suddenly before the travail. Now, 
I know that doesn't happen. Usually there's the travail and then the birth. And so when I read these passages, I try to read them in line with what John writes in Revelation, where the woman brings forth the child and the child will become the kingdom of God. And so that's kind of how I read Isaiah 66, verses 7 and 8, that Zion is coming forth, and it's this birthing process, but Isaiah is surprised at how fast this happens. He sees it happen so fast. Now, that's kind of how I read it, that Zion is bringing forth her children. This image kind of reminds us of Isaiah 49, 20, where it says, the children which thou shalt have after thou hast lost the other shall say again in thine ears, the place is too straight for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. It seems to be that Isaiah sees that this land is too small for Zion to live in. And I love the idea that Joseph Smith shared where he said, one day Zion will fill the whole world. And I kind of see that happening in Isaiah 66. Now, those of you who have children and grandchildren out proclaiming the gospel, you need to see how he saw them. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 66, I will set a sign among them. I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. Now he lists a few nations. To the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. They shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all the nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts. To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel unto the house of the Lord. You know, Bryce, this really helps me see Paul's mission. I think Paul reads these verses and it foreshadows his missions. You see, these are the nations of the world. Javan is Greece. And Lud is North Africa. These are the nations of the world. And we don't get this a lot in the Old Testament. Often in the Old Testament, it's a very closed system meaning they're not out encouraging proselyting. But at the end of Isaiah 66, we have this global image of taking the message outward. Now, I want to end with this one thought in Isaiah 66, and it seems to really unify Isaiah 40 and 66 and kind of close it out. You see, if you remember in Isaiah 40, in the very first verse, we read this, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, if you go to Isaiah 66, verse 13, we read this, and it's a threefold statement. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. This really does tie us back into that image of the exiles coming back, their being nourished. We kind of see that in verse 12 and that they're being comforted. And this image is also related to kingship. We're back to the temple. Being comforted is being empowered. I also see a lot of these images in verse 11 and 12 of Isaiah 66 rooted in the image of the tree. In 1 Nephi 8 and 11, notice the superlatives that Nephi uses for the tree. Help me out, Bryce. They use sweet white, joyous, desirable, pure. And it's like the most of all those. Yeah, and it's always a superlative. It's not just sweet. It's the sweet above all that is sweet. Now, in Egypt, coming to that tree was to be 
breastfed by the goddess to drink mother's milk. And so if you look in Isaiah 66, verse 11 and 12, it says that you may suck and be satisfied with the breast of her consolation, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her joy. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck and you shall be born upon her sides and dandled upon her knees. That image is a holy of holies image, coming to the tree and drinking the most white, the most sweet thing ever, and then being comforted, being empowered. And so I do see a lot of inspirational ideas in Isaiah 66. We hope you've loved Isaiah, and I want to remind you that Nephi said, when I really wanted my brethren to see and understand the Messiah the Redeemer, the Savior, I read Isaiah. We hope that he has become clear, that that image of who he is and what he intends to do, and that when Jesus walks into that synagogue in Nazareth and quotes Isaiah, it makes clear what he intends to do in all of our lives. We hope he has become clear to you as we've read Isaiah. But not only that, but you have gained a vision of our work in the latter days. Isaiah saw us. He saw this remnant that would do glorious, wonderful things. May we be the people that Isaiah saw that we would be. And that's what drives Mike and I to the microphones every single week to proclaim his name and help all of us become the people he wants us to be. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover the first part of Jeremiah. Thanks for listening and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.